0: And welcome to another episode of the Science in Dance podcast. Um, we're taking a break from our Life as a Pro series to bring you a couple of podcasts over the next week or so with dance scientists here in the UK. I'm really delighted to invite Nico Kolokithas onto the podcast today. Nico is an accredited coach from the UK Strength and Conditioning Association and has over 15 years experience in athletic development of adolescents in elite performance in a variety of sports including judo, netball, basketball, football, taekwondo and tennis. He's also currently the strength and conditioning coach for professional martial artists in Muay Thai and mixed martial arts. Based at Elmhurst Ballet School he completed a PhD in injuries and the adolescent ballet dancer and also works as a consultant for Birmingham Royal Ballet. As a part of his studies He led a randomized control trials in injury prevention and has now developed an injury prevention intervention called the 11 Plus Dance. Nico also specializes in rehabilitation of overuse injuries in adolescents who are training at different sports and at pre-professional level. Since 2014, Nico has been visiting lecturer at University of Wolverhampton in science and coaching, motor learning and control, and in the MSc in dance science. Nico is a a colleague of mine, um, and I'm very, very fortunate to have learned a thing or two at a variety of conferences over the last few years with Nico. Um, And I would say, off the bat, Nico is uh, really challenging the perceptions and the traditions within the world of dance in a, a very healthy manner, and I'm really delighted that he's on this podcast today. We go over a few different topics, um, everything from that's pretty current from what's going on in lockdown right now, um, which comes towards the end of the podcast, but initially we talk about his PhD, and also how he got into strength and conditioning and dance science in the first place. And we get a lot of questions to our our email address about how dancers can, or even um, young performing artists can transition into the sports sciences, the exercise sciences, dance science and strength and conditioning. So I thought it'd be good today for um, Nico to explain how he got into dance science and how he's found um, integrating strength and conditioning and exercise sciences into the world of um, ballet in particular, and in particular um, pre-professional or youth ballet is what some might call it. So I uh, hope you enjoy it as ever. Le- leave your feedback. Let us know what you think. And this is Nico. Hi Nico, thanks for joining me. Hey Robert, thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. It's been, uh, as I say, we said before, it was been been a l- little bit long overdue. But you've been a very, very busy gentleman with um, with your PhD thesis and getting that all topped off. And we've we've just talked a little bit off air about how you're sort of wrapping, still wrapping that up. But the um, the major point of today is to kind of push out into the uh, in further into the dance science world. Uh, what exactly you've been working on over the past few years and um, given the current sort of pandemic situation get your takes on uh, athletic training whilst people can't get into the studio I think those are our two major topics today and I've, I've, I've got a few questions in mind but for those that um, don't know you or haven't met you or haven't worked with you before could you just give us a bit of background on where you started in strength and conditioning and how you came to be doing a PhD with uh, Wolverhampton.
1: How, how long do we have? We have as long as you want. I don't <laughs> mind. It's a, long, it's a long story. You can uh, read I think strength and conditioning became a, a career path for me, uh, you, simply because I was uh, always in sports. Uh, but I... If... When I came to the UK many, many years ago, somebody was to tell me that I would uh, end up doing a PhD in, uh, in adolescent dancers, I-, I would laugh because there, is, there was no, no way anything like this in my imagination uh, when I came to, to the UK because my, my first degree was business. So it had, it had nothing to do with sports. And then my second degree was psychology. Again, nothing to do with sport. Uh, it was only when I started uh, the master's in sports and exercise sciences that something triggered the, the thought of uh, going into strength and conditioning. I had already started um, being a, a basketball coach. So I was, I was into coaching and into, and into sports for, uh, you know, for all my life, really. And it was uh, when I started working at the, at the university in the Athletic Union at the time, the University of Wolverhampton, that uh, my colleague uh, decided to do the Masters of Sports and Exercise Sciences. And she did it. And when she finished it, she came to the office and said to me, you know what, I think you can do this. And that's why I went into uh, sports and exercise sciences. She told me on Monday and on Tuesday, I went to the first lecture without even registering. I registered after I went to the first lecture. (laughs) And uh, I I hadn't done an undergraduate degree in, in sports and exercise sciences. So I had a lot to catch up because all the students there, all the students there were way ahead of me. And I went at the master's level, trying to understand what they already knew. So I did it, uh, I did it part-time, because I was working at the university as well. And um, yeah, that, was the, that changed my life. Then uh, there, was a, there was a big trip in the, uh, in the US. We had an exchange um, arrangement with Kentucky University. <coughs> Pardon me. and uh, when I went to Kentucky and it's, it's a fascinating uh, place to visit the university, not Kentucky and Lexington so much, but the university um, that was again another trigger to think that, okay, this is, this is really serious because there, uh, you know, in the state sports and especially varsity sport is, is a very serious business you know, that, that campus has an 80,000 city. Um, American football stadium that they use six times a year and the rest of the time is closed so this is, this is really serious so I came back to the UK and I had some vision for the university and um, the, the university didn't have a, a strength and conditioning uh, coach position so as I, was, as I finished the Masters I started um, putting a proposal together and I managed to create a position for myself at the university because it just didn't exist and um, the the director of uh, of sport was was interested because he was a he was a sportsman, and uh, we had uh, developed a very nice collaboration and friendship, so we thought, you know how about we give it a try and that's how I started working with. In a few positions at the university and you know when you start you do quite, quite a lot of freebies and then uh, the position will evolved and i managed to get a contract so i went into first basketball coaching then masters in sports and exercise sciences then strength and conditioning and i was looking after the sports teams of the of the university uh, because we just didn't have a program like this. And I started with simple tasks, uh, like uh, working with uh, a senior uh, track and field coach who was a lecturer at the university. And I simply went to his uh, office and I knocked at the door and I said, I want to become an SNC coach. And uh, he just put his arms around my shoulder and said, come along. And uh, I. I just observed hours and hours of, of observation, and then he gave me, and I participated. I did the stuff that he was saying, and then he gave me a, a warm up, so I had to do the warm up for the like the circuit training that we were doing every Friday, and then uh, two years later he said to me, "Okay, let's give you more responsibility," and then I just took over the the, the circuit. Uh, and he stepped away and that's how it evolved at the university. And I created a, like a, a name for myself as an as an c coach at the, at the university. Now, we are still far away from a PhD because I had finished the master's and the, uh, my mentors, both uh, um, Sean Galloway, who was the main coaching mentor, and Matt Ryan were saying to me, you need to do a PhD. And I was saying, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I never, never wanted to get uh, into that because I had some close friends who went through a PhD process and I thought, nah, not me.
0: I, it, it didn't look like fun. Do you think it's important to, um, with a PhD, to find something that you're passionate about?
1: That was the, the first thing that a very close friend of mine said to me he said to me don't listen to them you only start the phd if you fall in love with a topic that was the first thing that he said and then he said to me he he was saying to me don't force it don't don't just do it because they tell you to do it because it's not going to work uh, but again I, I i wasn't making the decision to do um, a, a phd because I, I i never found the topic that i was really uh, really really keen there were there were ideas research ideas but there wasn't the topic per se uh, so i i was enjoying um getting better uh, in the, the crafting of uh, coaching and uh, because i had a dual role i was a basketball coach i was looking after a group of people i started with a female team of the university and then i took over the men's team uh, because I, I was doing that, but then I was also working as an SNC coach for individual sports, but for group sports as well, team sports. Um, things evolved. I started collaborating with the TAS program uh, with the University of Birmingham, then the regional netball team, West Midlands regional netball team, they were interested and I started coaching uh, that program. And I, I had quite a, quite a few players in, uh, in that program. So I was getting into the crafting of coaching and um, I wasn't interested in, uh, in the PhD. And, uh, and then what happened was that the British judo announced that they were looking for uh, 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 for centralizing their, uh, their practice for, uh, for the London Olympics. And uh, the University of Wolverhampton put a bid And I was part of the team uh, that put the bid together, led by Mike uh, Chamberlain. And he was the director of sport. And uh, we won the bid. So British Judo came uh, to University of Wolverhampton Walsall campus. And uh, they were going to create a center of excellence. And that was a a huge project. Um, And what, what this gave me the opportunity was to design a gym. So I was given the task because we didn't have a performance gym. I was asking for it for, for a few years and it was going always at the bottom of the priority list of the university. At some point I had to ask the university, you know, the, the senior people, I said, so how deep is that list? Because you keep saying that it's not at the top of the priority list, but how, how deep is it? You know, Where are we? and then british judo uh, said yeah we want this we want to we want to come to you but you don't have a gym and suddenly the university said yeah we do we're going to build one and they gave me they gave me a room and they said to me make a gym so i i designed the, the gym for 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 british judo uh, and that was a, that was a huge project and uh, that that gave me the opportunity to meet a lot of the the british judo uh, management team, and uh, I'm getting to the to the PhD now. Uh, and then what happened was that the, the British Judo came in, and the director of performance uh, said to me, was I think it was September. Uh, he said to me, we need the coach to take us to the the British Championship, and uh, we don't have an SNC. We haven't uh, we haven't advertised yet. So, are you going to be okay? to do this. And I thought, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, uh, so I was seconded uh, by the university to look after the uh, British judo team. And that was an amazing experience. And it was also like an audition since we are talking about dancers. Uh, it, it was like an audition uh, for, for the job. So I was asked to apply uh, when the job ad came. And uh, I, I put my application forward and uh, it went down to the last two. I was one of the two out of 30, 35 applicants. And in the end, I didn't get the job, unfortunately. Uh, it was Alan McDonald who got it and he was better uh, because he had an experience of an Olympic cycle and I didn't have he, he had worked as an assistant and he had an experience of an Olympic cycle. So he beat me in the last, uh, in the last stretch.
0: Would your, would your current career path in ballet be there if you'd done a cycle, Olympic cycle with judo, just out of interest?
1: I don't know. I don't know. Because the, the reason I went to the, to the PhD is not so much related with the fact that I didn't get the job. Even though, even though you know, when you come, it's better to come tenth than to come second because you're so close and you still don't don't get it. Yeah. Um, It was because there was change of management, and uh, I didn't like the the way things were were running, and I was looking for an exit strategy. And I literally came out of of a meeting, and uh, I was I was walking across campus to go to my uh, to my office. And I was thinking, I need, I need to get out because this, this is not going to work. And uh, Matt Wyon was standing at the building and uh, the a door opened. And uh, he said to me, do you want to do a PhD in dance? And I literally changed path, Literally. The path to my office was a different path. And I just turned left and I said to him, okay, let's do it. And that was the decision. So nothing, nothing was planned, nothing. Nothing was... Um, uh, you know was driven towards that direction it was just that i was offered i put the proposal together because i i had it had to be approved it wasn't given to me there were there was there was an interview but he said to me this is what's happening let's let's try and do it and that's how i i don't want to say ended up because it's not a and it sounds negative that's how my career changed
0: so I was at, I obviously came to the, one of the, not last year's, but the, the I think it was the year before, it was 2018, I think, um, the dance science convention that was at yeah. Wolverhampton. And I listened to you talking there and you, you were saying that your PhD, you felt your PhD had changed shape yes a few times. So would you be able to give us a, a rundown on what your topic started as? What your interest was and and why you came to the conclusion that things it, it morphed or changed throughout the yes. period of time yes the 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 initial
1: um, uh, the, the initial position was uh, was created because uh, the Elmhurst Ballet School was looking uh, for somebody to work in the gym and the gym didn't look uh, the way it looks now the way I, I have put it together it was something completely different uh, but uh, cleverly, uh, Professor Matt Wyon said that if we if we're gonna help practice, we need to produce research. We need to do something, not just bring somebody to train kids. And uh, so that that was that was the PhD position developed. Uh, but then it was a clean sheet. There was no uh, there was no true question because there is not a lot there is not a lot. Uh, Known about this population, there is quite a bit of observation yeah. uh, in adolescents, but the, the, it's not not a lot of research uh, questions. So yeah. what I did is I, I, I went uh, in the school, and for the first few months, I literally uh, spent it looking and observing, meeting with the teachers, going in the class, uh, standing outside the class, just looking, observing, trying, trying to, to feel the culture, trying to, trying to understand, create relationships, uh, rapport, etc. And in the meantime, I started uh, just, I, I put it like a, a battery of tests together and I started investigating, trying to find something that made sense. So it wasn't very clear though uh, because I was, I was on my own. I was, you know, you're you you are at the start of the PhD. You have done a few investigations when you, when, you, when you go to the PhD. You have done a few investigations in your master's. You have helped fellow students. But it's a different thing to run things. Too. You are the man and you have to or the woman uh, and uh, and you have to run things so I was trying things out and I was trying to make sense of the of the environment and uh, what I'm in and, and in the meantime I was reading I was reading trying to understand you know the literature uh, and one of the in quotation commas sexy topics was growth and maturation so there was a lot of uh, literature coming out mainly Many for football uh, talking about uh, growth and maturation and how uh, the uh, how growth and maturation is associated with uh, injuries uh, effects I was trying to understand, so I think it was three months down the road like i, ha- I, ha- I had already had uh, a few meetings with my supervisory team raising questions and the the, I was, I was getting, I wasn't getting anywhere. So I, in one of the meetings, three, four months later, I think I, I went to the supervisor team and I said, I think we need to investigate growth and maturation. And uh, I think that uh, there is not a lot of information as to what's going on and is, is there a relationship? uh and uh, that was the beginning and that's that's what i started focusing on i started collecting data uh, again not perfectly but i started collecting data thinking that i could answer Uh, but then i realized that this is a far longer project than what the phd is funded for Uh. Uh, because if you want to make if you want to make something out of this, you really need to go longitudinally, and we are talking about a few years of collection of data.
0: And you mean is that is that, is that like tracking? Is that what you
1: Yes, tracking and uh, doing you know injury audit tracking, and then at some point you will have you will have enough points of data to be able to see if there is uh, if there is a relationship.
0: Uh, I feel like I remember something, uh, and you can obviously tell me if I'm wrong, and I am probably got the quote completely wrong about what you said, but you may have not said that you were struggling to find a relationship between maturation, injury, or, or there was um, a loose relationship. I can't quite remember what you yeah. said was the, so, was the defining factor that made you change your mind. Or-
1: yeah, it was the systematic review. Uh, I started uh, because they, you know, again, starting the PhD first, you start uh, getting your bearings, uh, then you start reading and then you need to create a question. So growth and maturation. So is there a relationship? I started looking into the dance literature. There are, there are some papers, but there's not enough literature. So I extended the question to aesthetic sports stroke disciplines. Uh, even though dance is not considered a sport, I thought that it, it could fit in that description. I, I had read a lot on, on youth sport and uh, growth maturation and uh, consensus, consensus statements, etc. So I developed a, a question to see what does the literature say? And in the literature, what was coming out was that the, the results were equivocal. Uh, they... On, on one hand, you would get a study that would say there is a relationship, and on the other hand, you would get a study that would say there isn't a relationship. So that led me to believe that is it, is it really a question that's, that's worth uh, fighting for? Uh, is, it, is it something that, okay, and let's say that there is a relationship, I started thinking okay, what if there is a relationship? What are we going to do? There is, there is no way in a vocational uh, school uh, that you can, you can start categorizing uh, children uh, according to the maturation status. There is no, logistically, you, you wouldn't be able to split the kids and say that, okay, these kids are going to have to train differently. So with a different tutor or within the class, you have, let's say, 20 Uh, Students and you will say that these five are potentially going to be through their growth spurt within the next six months. So I don't want them to jump like the uh, like the rest of the class. It's it's logistically it's impossible to do.
0: So I've I've just kind of written something down here, which I mean it was it was a hot topic, maybe probably still is, but certainly two to three years ago in sports science journals or in sports science. publications we were talking about biobanding yes grouping athletes based upon their biological age yes now you would mention obviously the vocational setting and you know people know we both work in some kind of vocational setting however i don't have much to do with the vocational setting that starts at the age of 11 and so do you think that there is a merit to Setups that are where they have the grade system in dance based upon your level. So like grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, grade five, and you have different people in, of different ages within that grade. Is that potentially a route to, to of the future? Is that is that like biobanding, in your opinion? The, the, there, are, there are a couple of authors
1: in the UK who believe that this can work, bio banding can work in dance. And I feel that uh, this, this is a false belief. And this is probably because they haven't spent enough time in the vocational setting. Because in a in a vocational school you have you don't have just dance, you also have academics. So and you only have a, a limited amount of space. So logistically to to split the group uh, and try to buy or ban them but then have the timetable in such a way that you make sure that they meet in the academics that all happen in the day and they need to uh, they need to have a, a timetable that has a start and an end everybody at the same time that uh, I challenge anybody to sit down and create a timetable that works for and, and without having to employ double the amount, of, the amount of tutors and without having to build extra studios. This is what without, we have.
0: Without having um, our own sort of like committee here between you and I, I, um, I, I obviously agree. Um, the, the logistics of organization within schools is, is really tough. Um, But I find it quite interesting that you um, talk about the difference in people's biological age and the age that they're at and the group that they were within and the challenges that are presented by not being able to train people slightly differently, even if that's just S&C differently. Do you know what I mean? Because people have different, you know, it might, that's a simple way to look at it.
1: Yes. Uh, You know what, uh, Rupert? Uh, I, I listened to uh, Professor Marlina's uh, talk. Uh, I think it was in Houston. Uh, and it was a very interesting talk. And one of, even though he said so many things and there was so much data after data, after every slide, like you, you could be taking pictures of every slide because it was, it was, it was so good. Uh, it was the last sentence that he said that changed everything for me he said that uh, i'm paraphrasing i've I've made it i've made it my my own because i can't remember exactly how he said it but he what he meant was that we cannot control it but we can control for it so you cannot control growth and maturation because this is nature this is going to happen no matter what you do but we can, tr- we can control for it, which means that we can look after what the students do in the studio, and stop worrying about what nature is gonna do, because nature is gonna do what nature is gonna do, whether we like it or not. But we can start thinking about what's happening in the studio, no matter where they are in their uh, maturation status. It doesn't matter whether there is an early mature or a late mature. What is important is what's happening in the studio. And of course, you cannot individualize. When you, when a class, uh, a technical class, has one teacher per 20, 25 students, you cannot expect individualization. And again, in, uh, in strength and conditioning, you cannot expect individualization. And one of the main uh, things and problems is that is individualization the issue when we are talking about 11 plus 12 year olds 13 year olds or is it that we have training age zero and we need to start working out and what that workout is of course it's a little bit different between uh, the 11 plus year old and the uh, 15 or 16 year old but we still have training age zero mm. and for me individualization goes out of the window when you can't do the basics yeah so uh, so coming back to Professor Marlina that was to me that was a turning point you cannot control it but you can control for it and, and that was where the PhD uh, changed because I had already started thinking about what can I do, what is the minimum work as training that I can give them, with some form, uh, not some form. What can I ask them to do to to get to get an effect and some adaptations? Uh, and it can be as general as it can. So that I have, I'm, I'm one person, and I have 190, 190 to 200 students. What can I do to start ticking some boxes? So on one hand, I put growth and maturation to the side. I didn't stop monitoring. I, I'm, I'm, I collect data. And I am the only person who collects data for height. So there is one person measuring height for the past five years Uh, it can be a nurse that takes the weight but i don't mind but the height is it's always me so i have i have the data and i keep collecting the data but the focus wasn't anymore growth and maturation the focus was what can we do in the studio to get some form of adaptations
0: okay so realistically it became it changed from being Almost cross sectional to being performance based in, uh, in a way. To, in people, a way, you were trying to, you know, elicit an effect to some degree. Uh, yes. which, which I think, uh, and I know that Professor Matt Wines talked about this before, and I think when I've had our loose discussions with him, he said, <laughs> you know, I'm not, not, not interested in reporting injury anymore. I want to know what's going to make people better dancers. Exactly, and, and I think that's um, I think that's where we get we get stuck a little bit, isn't it? Because we're in this subjective art form, uh, and what is better dance is a is a question not many people can answer be, because of the, the subjective nature of it. So, based upon the study, the the the, the work that you've done, you know, what were some of the key outcome? conclusions if you like of the work that you've culminated over the last few years like what, were the, what were the, where did you get to
1: well the that's a good question uh, uh, what what happened was that from the battery of tests that I, I i put together the most important finding had nothing to do with core strength had nothing to do with balance had nothing to do with uh i can't remember what else i was trying uh, in, it, it had to do with counter-movement jumping. It was, the, it was the jump height of the female dancers that triggered everything that I have done. Because what I observed, and this was my first presentation in Nye Adams in Hong Kong, what I observed was that the 11 plus years old, were jumping, the female, were jumping as high, as the 19 year old females. So there was, and there was a little bit of a drop in performance. Uh, Minute, but still, it was either a flat line or regression. Whereas the boys were developing. And you know very well that in in dance, uh, you are considered a turner, either a turner or a jumper. And I was fascinated with this, because there was there was a boy with a i think it was fifty four centimeters uh, jump he wasn't uh, he wasn 't an amazing dancer, but he could jump, uh, but the girls were all struggling, and that was what triggered my thinking not not the jump of the height per se because uh, when I presented at the, at the dance teachers uh, the first thing that I, I got was it's not about the height of the jump but, no it isn't but isn't it because if, if somebody can only jump 23 centimeters or below 25 and they need 23 centimeters to meet the music and the beat that means that they, they, they keep jumping at their 100% so if we give them a little bit of a buffer, yeah. that and we bring that 100% to maybe 70%, even 80%, it might feel a little bit better. It might, you know, the, the engine might feel a little bit better. And then I looked into the literature, and it was uh, Professor Kutedakis that uh, had said that the engine was underdeveloped. So... <laughs>
0: Just a reminder that you're listening to the Science and Dance podcast and today's episode is with Nico kolokathas and uh, as ever, we'd be really grateful to hear your feedback on today's episode, plus also any comments that you'd like to make or any, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, we're more than more happy to, for you to reach out to us on social media, um, Nico In the second part of this um, episode goes in more, more depth about his research and his observations within the world of ballet and also into how things are looking in terms of training and ballet and returning to dance after this pandemic lockdown.
1: High performance demands for an underdeveloped engine.
0: It's kind of the old old adage, isn't it, within within strength training, you know, if you you make your ceiling, if your ceiling is X and then you make your ceiling 2X, then, you know, the same percentage output over a period of time is gonna feel a lot easier. I know it doesn't quite work like that if you're just building strength versus muscular endurance, but as you say, if you've got some room to go and you're not having to jump 95 plus percent all the time, then um, you probably your body's going to probably have a bit of an easier time with what it's being asked to do. However, I kind of loosely talked about talking about jumps and talking about other things. Do you think because of potential shifts in culture for female dancers to be good at other things, less time and intent has been sp- spent on... Jumping for female dancers of, of a certain age. Do you think they're more interested in other things, and therefore that aspect is underdeveloped?
1: Um, I wouldn't say it's underdeveloped. I would say it's not developed. Like it's 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 not that it, there was some development, and now it's underdeveloped. It's there is no focus
0: on the development of power. So um, so with 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 that in mind, I think I think about. Um, to, to try and draw in S and C chat from, from other corners of the globe, which I'm super interested in. I know the listeners are as well. Sometimes we try is the whole quality over quantity thing, you know, where we talk, if we talk about sprinting, then if we just make people try and run as fast as possible with minimal rest and minimal quality, then we're probably not going to get improvements in sprint performance. Whereas if we maximize output over a longer period of time, Build in more rest. Do you think that's some, uh, a direction that dance training could go in in order to improve it, to, to start developing that?
1: There is a, the focus of vocational education in dance is uh, artistry and uh, movement proficiency. And uh, the, the physical attributes or aspects of training are neglected i don't want to sound negative but it's because there's so much to learn technically there is not enough time to put uh, physical attributes in so what is really interesting and this is part of one of the studies that i'm i'm presenting in the in the thesis is that the, the what we observe in the female dancers which by the way i observed in two consecutive years so that means that i had the full school tested and then the following year i did exactly the same thing and i got the same lines which means that the new 11 year old class students and we had one set of graduates gone so the new graduates gave me exactly the same results which is really interesting no change um, so, what, what we observe in the, in, the, in the female dances and what we observe in dance, we don't observe in volleyball. So I discussed this a little bit more thoroughly in the, in the thesis, but when you look into the, the data for adolescent volleyball players, female uh, volleyball players, you see an increase of uh, counter-movement jump with age. So they are doing something right to keep developing the power. So there is, there is some power that is, if you want, genetically predisposed for some kids. So they come to the school and there is, there is power and they can produce the jump, but this doesn't get trained in order to further develop it. So then the body changes in size both in height and in weight. And the, the power, the jump height remains the same, but they're a lot heavier and a lot bigger. So they, they have to try a lot harder and they get the same results. Mm. So we don't see this in female volleyball players. And that was, that was a very interesting observation. And that's when I started thinking that okay it's not about simply underdeveloped it's it's not developed it's just natural and then it doesn't get developed so they lose it
0: interesting i mean it's it's a it's obviously it's still a puzzle because you you think about the hours and the jump intensive nature of dance whether it's ballet whether it's any other form you know it involves I would say, you know, it, 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 from the literature, but, but I'm thinking across dancers dancing as a gen, in general, whether it's Latin and ballroom, you know, they yeah. don't they don't necessarily they have low amplitude rapid movements. If we're talking about a jive, if we're talking, you know, they're not necessarily max maximizing jump height on a regular basis. Volleyball every time somebody goes up for a spike at the net, you would say that there was a maximum output. Is it? Do you think it's also to do with how regularly people are expressing max or is it to do with the fact that volleyball or other sports are partaking in strength and conditioning or athletic development aside from it's, the sports practice?
1: It's not either or. It's probably a combination. Uh, dancing is a discipline of sub-maximal efforts uh, even though there are moments that the dancers and students feel that they are going they're trying their best or they're trying their 100% it's still a uh, sub-maximal
0: effort. Is that because dancing is in itself um, the choreograph nature of it the movement nature of it you're not necessarily trying to move from A to B as fast as possible and,
1: and, and of course think about it you still need to meet the music yeah. you still need to meet the beat so you, you can't if you, if you have let's say uh, arbitrary number but uh, if, you, if you have one second and then you jump for one and a half second you are off the beat so unless you do something in order to put the maximal effort in you're not going to be able to achieve it therefore the, the the way that the training is set is not set for maximal effort, so there is no there is no way that we can get
0: uh, that because the music is there. And this, com- this I guess this comes back to um, looking at aerobic development for for dancers. It comes back to looking developing muscular endurance for dancers. Is that the 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 class format, the rehearsal format, performance format? doesn't lend itself to any adaptation.
1: No. And and the research shows that we cannot reach the, um, we cannot reach the level of exertion that a a dancer reaches in a performance in the studio. Uh, When they are rehearsing or when they're they're in class, they cannot reach that level.
0: So when it comes down to training dancers, whether it's in lockdown or not um and the specificity of the training yes do you believe it's as simple as train train dancers generally and get you know whether it's muscle architecture or or whatever musculoskeletal improvements systematic improvements uh, systemic improvements sorry um and that will transfer naturally because of their sort of undertrained or sorry, training age zero level. Do you think there'll just be a natural transition from one to the other in, in adolescence? Uh,
1: a good point because I have a, I, I, I have a thing about the specificity. I'm not um, uh, I'm not against it, but I'm not so much pro. It especially when we're talking about uh, adolescents with training age zero. Uh, And uh, I think there is a a very nice example from uh, an elite athlete uh, and a documentary that came out, uh, you know, a a month ago uh, with Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. (laughs) I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> elite, elite singer uh, Michael Jordan and last dance
0: yeah uh,
1: what, uh, what is really interesting about uh, Jordan and he, he was an idol for so many athletes and you know I was a basketball player so
0: yeah but uh, it was a big deal for you as well
1: yeah uh, so what, uh, what we saw um, in his training okay they didn't spend a lot of uh, time to actually show, show him in the gym he, there, were, there were only a few uh, shots uh, but we never saw anything anything, anything as to what we see now the, the, the guy was doing bench press, military press and he was military press seated uh, he was doing lat pull down, he was using machines and uh, he was just doing basic stuff, can anybody doubt the athletic abilities of this of this guy. Can anybody doubt that he changed the way uh, the NBA looks now? Like he is the reason why the NBA is like this now. You know. Yeah. So I feel that when you he okay, he was genetically predisposed, and he was he was already good, and he he carried on maintaining his body healthy, and he was training, but specificity. I'm not so sure that applies to him. And he was phenomenal. So for the, for the young dancers, uh, when they, they have a training age of zero, specificity for me is not important. For me, what is important is, is to expose them to different movement patterns, to challenge their body, and to, to try and teach about form, to try and, and exp- uh, how form applies everywhere whether you're doing uh, a ballet class and you're trying to achieve a a position or whether you are trying to do a hip hinge it's still form and there are certain rules that you have to follow and when you start looking into the language that they're using in the studio and the language that you can use in the in the gym there are things that are pretty similar because you know, I, I am very and you know this. I'm very pedantic sometimes with the way that the neck might be, uh, might be positioned when we're doing a hip hinge exercise, but they wouldn't allow their neck to be uh, breaking the line in the in the in the studio. So is this, you know, somehow making it a little bit more specific? But it's a it's a rhetorical question. I'm just thinking that. I don't, I don't think of, of the young dancers uh, as, oh, I have to think about the dance so much about what they're doing. I'm thinking I need to improve the training age. And of course, there are certain elements that apply to them. So we need to focus on certain areas, a little bit more, and a little bit different, but still they need to do the basics, no?
0: So were you based to go back to sort of your conclusions surrounding this jump height, almost deficit or difference or mm-hmm. no change, whatever you would like to describe it as, um, to conclude with I know because obviously I, I know you've got your eleven plus dance that you developed um, to try and bring s and C into the studio yes and make it manageable within class times, within a, a, a vocational timetable. When you've tested the 11 plus dance and you've, with outcome measures, like, you, like you've been talking about, what are your results? What are you, what are you, what are you kind of seeing? What are the patterns, what should we, what should dance teachers, let's say they've got no access to, um, cause I know that, I know there's transfer here. So I'm gonna ask this question let's say that dancers don't, teachers don't have access to an SNC coach like yourself or me. Are there things now that we, your research is suggesting that people could put together in order to develop these things yes. that have been developed?
1: Yes. Uh, the 11-class the dance is a neuromuscular-based uh, workout. It is, um, it is developed and adapted from a great volume of uh, literature in neuromuscular training especially in football uh, and what the the research shows is that when uh, done correctly and administered over a long period of time uh, there is an, a reduction of uh, injuries and injury risks so that's how I, I i started developing now the first thing that you need to do when you are developing an intervention in you is you need to You can't just apply it and say, right, I want to investigate injuries. The first thing that you need to do is to see what it does to the body, what it does to the organism. So I tested counter movement jump and what I found was that there was an improvement and there was an improvement when we did the study for seven weeks. And there was an improvement when we did the study for nine weeks. Now, because it was a randomized control trial, that means that I, I randomly selected participants from for the group that was doing the 11 plus dance and randomly selected the participants that went and trained with the teacher. Now, another thing that happens in research is that you might, you might compare something with nothing. So you do an intervention and the, uh, the, the control group does nothing and then you investigate the the effect. That's not practical in a vocational setting for two reasons. Uh, One, what do you do with the the students who are going to be doing nothing? Mm. Like you you, you have to ask them to sit and do nothing. And two, you can't give a a clear performance advantage to one group and not to another. And as long, unless you are able to do a crossover. So what I did is after I did the feasibility study to see whether I can do it in the, uh, in the next studies, I approached the teachers and I said, I need 30 minutes of the class that you dedicate in some form of fitness anyway, but I want to take away some of your students. And I want you to carry on doing what you think is right for those 30 minutes. And they're gonna do my intervention and, uh, for, the, for those 30 minutes. Now, once I did this straight away, you, you create some form of competition. And this is, this is part of a, a, an, another presentation that I do about promoting, uh, promoting evidence-based practice in the traditional environment you create some form of, of competition because you are, you are trying to compare something with something. So automatically you have a, a, an, an issue there in, in, in quotation commas. So what is really interesting is that because we dedicate those 30 minutes of training for both groups, for the usual training and the 11 plus dance uh, group, uh, both groups improved. So it wasn't just the 11-class dance group that improved. It was the usual training group that improved, which shows something really interesting, that actually if you dedicate time in physical fitness, you will get improvements. So it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you do it.
0: Yeah, there's, there's the, the intent argument, isn't there? There's the, the many roads lead to Rome type argument. Yes. It, amongst, amongst, even amongst strength and conditioning coaches, I think that we're, we're always in search for optimal. Um, and maybe there are a number of different ways to do the same thing.
1: Yes. However, however, there is always a but. There are many. <laughs> uh, the, the, the important thing is that you need to get better, you need to get improvements, uh, but you also need to make sure that you tick some boxes. So you can, you can have improvement. If somebody is untrained and you start training them, you, you will have improvements. Uh, the 11 plus dance group, even though both groups improved, the 11 plus dance group both times was just a little bit better in the scores. So when we did the equivalence testing, we didn't find equivalence. Equivalence was not established. And the scores for the 11-plus stands were always just a little bit uh, higher than the, the
0: usual training. Can you, give, could you give, the, uh, give our listeners kind of an idea of what the, the battery of tests were that you, what were your outcome measures?
1: Yeah, I did, uh, I did counter-movement jump, uh, two legs. Uh, and the uh, hands, hands on hips. And we did single leg counter movement jump in order to assess asymmetry, interlimb asymmetry. Uh, and we did the uh, isometric mid thigh pull. Uh, and we did one more jump, a uh, drop jump in order to assess reactive strength index. So for the reactive strength index, the improvements were, were minimal. It w- it's more like noise uh, in, the, in, in the data. But for the counter movement jump, the, um, uh, the isometric mid-type pull and the interlimar symmetry, there is something happening there that the 11 plus dance seems to be ticking the right boxes. And after I had done the, the studies, there, there was, a, there was a, um, a study that came out, I can't remember, at the top of my head, the author, but what these guys did, they created a checklist, uh, so that, because you know, an injury prevention intervention or an intervention uh, needs, to ha- needs to tick some boxes. If, you, if you're saying that you're doing something for a reason, you need to tick some boxes. And the the studies show that if for instance, you're doing lunges and you're doing squats, if there is uh, an exercise of balance, and if there is some uh, jumping and landing technique, there is this checklist of 11 points. And when I put the 11 plus stance on the test, I was getting 10 out of 11. So it's, it's as evidence-based as it can be. And the evidence that we have produced at the school supports that there is no harm and there is definitely improvement. So even though I'm not saying that you need to do what I say, I'm saying probably whatever you're doing is okay, but you can complement what you're doing with what we have created because it's definitely doing something good i just haven't got strong enough results to
0: say that this is it there are, there are kind of um, anecdotes i think there's research as well I mean, i'm i'm unsure about my sort of varsity college data collection or <laughs> theories anyway but because everybody, you know, there's there's a plethora of, of, of information about college sport in America, mm-hmm. um, but there seems to be loose anecdotes surrounding. Look, we get, we got these guys at, at eight, seventeen, eighteen, and they could jump this high. We they never do, they hadn't done much formalized strength and conditioning. They did formalize strength and conditioning, and it actually made them slower, or yeah. you know, it changed them. Do you think there's still um, changes happening within dancers or even athletes and what to what extent could they be detrimental to performance between the ages of 18 onwards because you've got some you know young dancers that go into companies for example who or or go into the world of work whether it's on a cruise ship or a ballet company it doesn't matter who won't necessarily have experienced strength and conditioning so do, do, do you have to therefore treat the, even the professional dancer as training age zero?
1: Well that, that was going to be my point what is the training age? If the training age is zero or very close to zero they need to go through the basics and there is no way you can fast forward the, the, uh, the process and one of my uh, shocking moment uh, in uh, uh, at the school was in my first year. The, the graduate girls asked to do a session with me, uh, and in my ignorance, I I said, yeah, "Yeah, yeah, of course," because I wanted to build the relationships and I, I I wanted to I wanted to help the graduate group first because I thought you know they were leaving the school, so as much as I can give them. So, I, I see a, a group of, of, of healthy, uh, young uh, female dancers, and I'm thinking of a group of young uh, netball players. And I'm thinking, okay, they are not doing the same, but training age, similar, so we're just going to take it easy. Bodyweight exercises, and we're going to focus on two legs, single leg, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I put a 30-minute a, a workout together. I couldn't walk for seven days. And it was just body weight. And that was, that was what shocked me because it, it was a reality check of what I thought was something really simple. And really, for a healthy population, it should have been simple and it should have been something that it shouldn't have caused so much pain. For them, their conditioning was so poor, but the technical ability was so amazing mm. that it just didn't, it didn't fit. They looked really uh, healthy and fit and strong, but when I tried something, uh, they couldn't work for seven days and then it took them a long time to come back. <laughs> Luckily, it was Christmas.
0: <laughs> Based on that experience, Sounds to me, and I, I'm, I've had similar experiences myself. That it doesn't—it comes back to as something that we kind of know loosely, which is it doesn't take much to overtrain a dancer.
1: No, especially really, especially if the training age is zero.
0: It doesn't take much for them to be overloaded, and we know that this overload would result in some kind of. Chronic injury, overuse injury, maybe something accidental due to fatigue. Is there something in it there? So you know, you, you, we're talking about increasing capacity overall for all ages. Um, it's just a case of it being age appropriate, training age appropriate.
1: Yes, and an increasing capacity with, but still be mindful that the capacity is very low. Yeah. So you 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 cannot fast forward the process and. If you fast forward the process, you might run risks of uh, i'm going say if, if you if you try and, and go too fast too soon, there is a possibility that that might be detrimental to performance due to you know suddenly you have a, a, a much powerful, much more powerful uh, female dancer, but is not used to. The, the power and you might end up with more acute injuries. I don't know. It's a speculation. Yeah, I, mean, you,
0: I, I, I think there's, you know, a couple of tweets that have been sent over the years saying, you know, you can give a, an under, a, you know, a group of athletes that have never done any athletic training before to any s and coach and they'll improve. And I would actually argue that's wrong because I would say that there are populations that you have to be careful with you can't just get them to do anything because if you do you, you, you might add insult to injury um in in many respects but you kind of beat me to the question you kind of beat me to the question there um talking about you know what's what's appropriate um for you know even professionals you've still got to get them to to do the basics which i think is a good sort of take-home point from that perspective i have an interesting question because people are listen to this are sort of dance science students or dance students that have an interest in dance science and funnily enough um somebody you and i both know and 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 have had you know conversations with is martin lanfear who's Mm -hmm. physio at scottish ballet who also did an undergraduate degree in psychology (laughs) that's why we like each other (laughs) before he then did um, a master's and beyond in physio um and I'll admit that my pathway into sports science wasn't directly because I studied biology or anything. I, I didn't know what to do in the end and didn't want to go and do business. So I made the decision a bit earlier than you yeah. um, in terms of where I was at. But do you think that your, how much swing or influence does your business and psychology background have on your ability to apply knowledge or work work in sports science? Um
1: it's a valid question the answer is i don't know uh, and the reason i'm saying i don't know is because you cannot really you don't have compartments of knowledge no. uh, you don't have small boxes in the brain saying okay this is the psychology knowledge this is the business knowledge uh, now I will use that. You, so you cannot, you cannot. Do you, think it helps, do you think it
0: helps you? Do you think it helps with your coaching? Do you think it helps with your, yes. how analytical I, you are?
1: I think because I have been uh, exposed in many different environments, uh, that has made me, I would say, a little bit more agile uh, to adapt in the environment that uh, I'm in. So you know, as an athlete, uh, I was playing multi-sports, but focused on basketball, then I focused on martial arts and my passion was uh, in martial arts as much as it was in, in, in basketball when I was a teenager. Uh, but as far as occupation is concerned, I, I, have, I have tried many things and, and I, I, was, I was also a, a DJ, so I was, I was when as a student I was a DJ and I, I, at some point I had my own bar in Greece and I, I have done work in many different settings. So I feel that that's the important bit and not so much the the degrees. The degrees, uh, it's it just shows my passion for knowledge. But that's not to say that you need to go to university to, 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 to get knowledgeable. It's just that I chose that pathway because I feel that the university teaches you how to get knowledge and doesn't really give you the knowledge. So I feel that everything I have done in, in my life, and I mean everything, contributes to what I do now. But it would be very difficult to... Uh, to say what goes, what goes where. I think that it's, uh, it's, it's the experience that you gain from the different settings and then the life experience that contributes to where you are at a
0: particular moment in time. Because I, I know a couple of, I know quite, well, i say a couple, I know quite a few of young um, either dancers or students that haven't studied sport and exercise science before they're wherever they're up to right now and I think they find the task of switching into our profession the dance science profession or even into research quite daunting um what would you say that what would you say to them would, would you say that that was because obviously I'm saying this from a from a point of view that we, I think we both have is that we need more uh, people coming through to do good research within dance so I'm trying yes. to I want to motivate people to, yes, to take part in that. Uh,
1: yes, it, we, I, I think that the, the, the undergraduate uh, in sports and exercise sciences is a bonus, but it shouldn't be a limiting factor. Uh, it's, it's how driven you are and how much how much uh, appetite you have uh, in learning. I don't think it's easy to enter a master's level uh, without uh, some background of studying, not necessarily sports and exercise sciences, but some background of studying, uh, of, you know, the know-how of doing certain things. Uh, But I feel depending on your age, you you can handle the knowledge you might not be able to go as fast as others so i i did my master's in two years because i was working so it was part-time but it was for two reasons it was because i didn't have the background so i had to i had to catch up a lot more and read a lot more than the others Uh, and i thought uh, i I wanted to enjoy it as well because if you do a master's in one in one year it's it's quite go 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 you know everything is really really fast so i didn't I didn't feel that it was the right thing for me. So, I think that if if your passion is in in research and you want uh, you have an intriguing mind, then you want to uh, uh, to to support this uh, community. To um, I don't know to to contribute. Maybe is the is the is a better word to contribute in the uh, development development of uh, evidence and knowledge etc i think that it shouldn't stop you if you haven't done a, a, an undergraduate degree uh, but we have to say that it, it is a little bit age dependent you know you you, yeah. you need to you need some form of experience in order to be able to handle it because otherwise it might things might just go in but it's going to take you a long time for things to come out. Mm. So, uh, you know, knowledge is exactly like a, like a skill, a motor skill. You know, you 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 you're putting information in the brain, but it takes time for the brain to process and for the knowledge to actually uh, become yours. And that's a little bit philosophical, but there is there is logic in this that you cannot if. If you don't give it time for your experience to, uh, to to evolve through the knowledge that you actually put in the brain, then it isn't really yours. You're just. Uh, <laughs> just really, yeah, you are, you are, you're using other people's words uh, as your own, and that's not, uh, that's not really knowledge.
0: And then, so, I mean, it kind of brings me neatly to my sort of wrap up question, really. Obviously, to give people advice uh, in terms of the not being able to be in the studio at the moment. I know you were part of a, an, an I Adams panel, which we have not really talked about similar topics here today, but I just thought, you know, what are your key things that you would like dancers in terms of whether it's capacity testing matter, what would, what would be some key things that you would hope to them to maintain for when they return to the studio and some loose ideas on how they might go about that? I,
1: I wish, I wish I knew a little bit earlier what was going to happen because honestly this would have been an amazing little study <laughs> because I, I thought you know just just before just before the lockdown when things started not looking so good uh, and that was my thought was completely irrelevant to, to the lockdown I was thinking I think I think it's a, it's a good idea to test counter movement jump uh, probably around Easter or maybe after Easter. So I started thinking of collecting some more data and, uh, and I actually did for some, for some students because we had some time and I, I, to, I took some data. If I knew a little bit earlier and I had taken that data, I think it would have been interesting to see whether this lockdown can actually bring improvements in certain aspects <laughs> of, of of physical performance. Because I think I think that, and I, I did say this in the i Adams panel as well. I think that even though this is not a uh, uh, happy moments, this is not this is not nice uh, what 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 is happening globally, uh, it, it can still be an opportunity. And it can be an opportunity to focus your training uh, in different aspects, that sometimes you don't have time to do. So, on a dance uh, aspect, uh, you know the quality of movement is really important. You might not have the range of movement. You might not be able to have a lot of quantitative movement, but you can still look into the into the quality. And there are aspects of the quality movement that the teachers uh, want and strive. For the students to get uh, the, the, the difficulty is that the setting has changed so much, and the the the, the fact that you rely on 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 um, uh, on a video call in order to, to teach technically, I do appreciate that that is that is tricky. You know, it's not something that you it's not something that you know dance teachers had been prepared for, but if we look at it as an opportunity, instead of simply a threat that we are not in the studio, they're gonna deteriorate, we're gonna lose what we, what we, what we had, then that's, that's a negative uh, attitude towards the, the problem. If we look at it as an opportunity, you can find ways in order to challenge the body and the mind and still keep developing the young dancer on a technique level. On a physical level, even if we don't have a gym, and of course there are limitations, of course there are limitations of load, for example, uh, even though we can do, we, we still have a lot of books, we have rucksacks, we have uh, water bottles, we, we can sort of do some things, but on a physical uh, level, I think it's an opportunity for a training age zero population to actually develop the basics and do the basics right, improve capacity and come out of the lockdown in a better physical state than what you were before you went in the lockdown. And I am very confident that this is uh, doable. This is achievable. I don't know if I have answered
0: your your, your question. I I think you've given a better answer than the question was probably angling for, which is funny. But I I totally uh, understand that point of view. Um, I'm sure the people listening when this goes out um, will also appreciate the fact that, to kind of sum up in my words, maybe that some things aren't going to be as good as we would have hoped because that's the situation that we've been left with. However, there are things that we may not have put at the top of the list, as you say, whilst we were, weren't were in lockdown, that now we, we, we can focus on for the next few weeks, even if that's, you know, another, another uh, till September or till July, August. So I think that's really a, a valuable answer. Um, Nico, I'm, I've, I've run out of time uh, on this one, so... I've got more. <laughs> I know, I know, and, and I, feel, what I feel like we're going to do, I feel like we're going to have to do... I've got a couple of these lined up as a part two where we discuss things further down
1: the line. By all means, by all means.